to the fourth and final episode of the Football Finance Podcast as, as part of our series into look to the club ownership. I'm joined now by the author of The Price of Football, Kieran Maguire. How are you doing, Kieran? I'm grand, thanks, Jeremy. All good. Yep. Yeah, if any of you guys are looking to understand the football finance, it's one of the finest books out there that I can recommend. Um, I've enjoyed it read a bit myself. So this episode of Say Guys is a deep dive now into what we expect multi-club ownership could be in the next couple of years. Obviously, it's you can't predict. It's it, it's forever changing. But um, Kieran is going to be one of the finest people, I think, to talk to about this. So first question that we've got coming up is, it, as constant evolution goes um, with multi-club ownership, it's, it's become bigger and bigger and bigger and more, more clubs have become part of the families with it. So, Kieran, what do you think will be the next step for multi-club ownership and its evolution? I think uh, we, we could potentially be moving to some form of control of it from uh, the likes of FIFA and UEFA. Uh, the, the benefits of multi-club ownership are both financial and strategic, and it, uh, it, it is provoking some resentment from certain sectors of the industry. Uh, at, at the same time, it's perfectly acceptable in all other industries to to have uh, broader structures. So uh, my, my gut reaction is that, uh, as always, the lawyers and the accountants will be the winners. We will be left scratching our heads. But uh, the, the, the success of the City Football Group has been so significant that you can see the benefits uh, especially in a post-Brexit environment from, from a perspective of uh, English clubs, that uh, I'd expect it to, to carry on until somebody tries to stick a, a stick through the spokes of the wheel. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that people say, saw with multi-club ownership, with one of the sort of challenges it possesses is when two clubs technically owned by the same group compete in the same European tournament, which is obviously... The best one being Red Bull Leipzig, or Rashing Bullsport Leipzig and uh, Red Bull Salzburg. Technically, the slight name difference means they're not owned by the same people, but that is the big problem. And it's one of the ones that we'll get into is sort of UEFA and FIFA's what responses they can do. Because like many of us, I think we were all taken us back and a bit surprised by how quick this developed with the City Football Group now. With They've got, I believe it's eight clubs now in their ownership and they're looking to have another add another three or four and it's getting completely nearly out of control and um, i think for a lot of fifa delegates and especially UEFA now because they're sort of starting to think well how do they control this but that's like when we move into the second bit of when this multi-club ownership comes about Kieran, you'd agree they, they, they take these new clubs into their family and with red bull it's been a bit more um it's gone a bit further than what city football group has they haven't changed the likes of girona and Twa. And these sorts of clubs have stayed the same. But with Red Bull, they've completely stripped down clubs' badges and their kits. And it's almost as if their entire identity has changed. So is it a threat um, to traditional football clubs uh, and football clubs as we know it? Are we moving towards branded football rather than you know, what we've seen for the last 120 years? I think you're absolutely right, Jeremy, in, in the case of what we have seen with, uh, with the RB brand. Uh, everybody knows what it refers to. Uh, yeah, we're, we're we're not naive as football fans. I, I think the, the the critical issues is that um, many clubs have changed their badges. Yeah, we've seen Manchester United change theirs uh, pre and post Blazers. Uh, you know that is part of streamlining, start of brand recognition. 
I, th I think fans will be prepared to put up with that. It's when uh, it's, it's when some of the things which we hold sacrosanct are potentially going to be changed, such as you know the colour of the home shirt. Uh, if, if that goes uh, to uh, to a similar position that we saw with Cardiff City, um, where where it was changed and that didn't go down well with the fan base, um, then uh, I, I, I think that there could be a reaction. Um, in terms of being uh, a tail, which is not wagging the dog in terms of a brand, it is something to be aware of, but it's a very, very expensive project from, uh, from, from the brand's own perspective. So, uh, you know, at least you know in Formula One exactly what you are getting and that you will be playing, you, you will be uh, appearing in than it is you know, 18 F1 races each year. Uh, with with football, uh, there's there's no guarantees in terms of participation in the major European competition. So it could could end up being an expensive mistake. So I think brands will be cautious, um, and also I think they'll also have to be uh, take into consideration exactly what are the benefits uh, for the brand itself. You know, because if the if if the club has a has a has a bad few matches. Then, as fans, we tend to focus on the owners, so uh, it, it could it could end up backfiring. We, you know, we we have seen boycotts of uh, certain brands and products connected with clubs, so uh, I, I, I'm not necessarily convinced that uh, the RB experience will be repeated. Uh, it's far more likely that uh, we will see things either on an informal basis or a more formal basis, as we've seen with the City Football Group. We've just seen Everton sign up with Sligo Rovers uh, with, with a view to potentially getting a foothold in the EU market. Um, and, and there's benefits for all concerned there. Yeah, I mean, we'll get onto the positive benefits in a minute because like um, in episode two, I explained with the City Football Group, there's loads of sort of loopholes that having a club in Europe can, can help you get through. So we're getting through the positive benefits of that. But um, it is one thing I've heard people say is in the future, they don't want to see uh, Beijing City in the blue and white taking on uh, Red Bull Shanghai. It, it, it's one of these things a lot of people are a bit scared of is that these they'll start to eat up these clubs that effectively can't say no, especially post-coronavirus, that they need a bit of financial help. It exposes you to a wider brand market different kit deals, sponsorship deals, and, and all these clubs effectively can't say no um, because it's just such a good opportunity for them. But this word over, we sort of touched on it a little bit earlier by the governing bodies and their reaction to it. They've been completely taken back by it. The likes of UEFA and stuff we've seen with Manchester City, how they've been able to sort of use the multi-club ownership as a way to navigate FFP and UEFA haven't really been prepared for it. Um, Kieran, what way do you think that that these governing bodies are going to react now to in the future and try and sort of control it a little bit more? I think the first thing that they need to do is to take appropriate legal legal advice. Because as far as the City Football Group is concerned, it's a done deal. You know, that, that, that particular uh, ship has sailed. Uh, and then it's a case of trying to identify whether genuine harm has been done to the rest of the game certainly there are you know the, the benefits to city football group from from abu dhabi's perspective um i, I think are are well documented and and they, they genuinely work um and provided we we don't get potential clashes and i think that's something which the 
the uh, the holding companies themselves will have to take a lot of care of because their credibility risks being destroyed if uh, you know if uh, is, it, is it Genoa where City owned forty four percent if they end up playing Manchester City but that 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 in itself would be you know an, an achievement beyond all expectations so um, the the governing bodies will be monitoring they will be looking at the related party transactions when players are being transferred from one part of the group to another with, uh, with, with I would imagine, the same degree of care that they apply to related party transactions between sponsors and football clubs. And provided they are happy, I, I don't necessarily see they're going to try to ban uh, such relationships because I, I think that yeah, certainly under European competition law, I, I can't see any on what grounds that could could be applied. Um, and also domestically trying to prove if, if there is genuine harm in taking such an approach, because all it will do is it will encourage an informal relationship rather than a formal one. Yeah, and I suppose um, one of the counter arguments to it would be is what's the difference between the City Football Group coming over and taking a 44.3% stake in Girona to say, for example, a new owner coming in and taking over a football club in England is what, what is the real difference? At the same time, it's just a, a different change in ownership. And I suppose one of the things with the City Football Group has been one of the big arguments was they were using Girona, uh, they were using Girona as a way to navigate the uh, Brexit rules now with them being out of the European Union, they could use them to farm through youngsters and get all this hoover up this young talent and that's why they went with Trois and they were looking at other clubs as well and in Belgium with Lommel and they were looking, it was a way to go around the rules and I think UEFA didn't like that because it was something completely utterly out of their control. This was completely to do with Brexit and, and uh, UK split with Europe out of their hands and they were simply using an avenue that was technically legal because FIFA said that was the way that it had to be. But that's when we sort of start talking about this stuff. You get into what's the positive and negative effects of, of being under this uh, umbrella. And that's how we get to the bit where do each one's very hard to explain. Each one's hard to analyze because every club is individual. It's not the same. But do the overall benefits outweigh most of the negatives? From the, from the club's perspective, certainly. Um, you get the benefit of economies of scale in both revenue uh, and uh, and cost savings. You, you you only need one potential IT system for the whole group, so so you know you can spread those costs between the groups. You can uh, instill continuity of strategy in terms of recruitment and training. So therefore, if you have a friendly relationship with one of the satellite clubs, you know that uh, a player who's been successful in the academy in, uh, you know, in, in Girona, in, in New York, in Melbourne, um, the drills that they will have received will be similar to the drills that they, they will receive if they're deemed to be good enough to go to the mothership. So certainly from, from that company's perspective or from the, from the club's point of view, that the benefits are, are significant and sizable. Um, they, the smaller clubs also get the benefit of access to data and strategies, which they wouldn't necessarily receive themselves. So um, you know, they, they can potentially grow domestically. And from 
yeah, I think from the players' point of view, they 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 know that they're they're in a you know, effectively a holding area uh, if if they are proven to be good enough, and uh, that can only be good in terms of their long term careers. So. Um, uh, you, you can see the benefits. We've also got Brighton with uh, Union St. Galois uh, in Belgium. You know exactly the same relationship. You know, for, for, for my sins, I'm a I'm a Brighton season ticket holder. We've we've brought players across from Africa in the shape of Percy Tau, allowed him to pick up his uh, governing body endorsement points in effect whilst he was in Belgium and and there. Um, and from from the from the parent club's point of view. Um, if they do recruit exciting youngsters who they feel would best be developed by going out on loan, then, then you've got clubs who are instantly you know, going to say yes. So it, it's, it's a no-brainer from, from the club's point of view. Does it give them a competitive advantage? Yes, it does. But is, is it wrong for that to, to be the case? I'm, I'm not convinced it is wrong. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of clubs who have competitive advantages from... A variety of reasons, some of which are financial, some of which are cultural, some of which are historic. Yeah, I, I suppose uh, just some of the negatives that people would say with it is for a club like Girona, who was previously in La Liga, the sort of now being in the control of the City Football Group, it's kind of their future really is there is a limit um, that they, they can't go as far. And it's not to say, look, Girona, if they weren't in the City Football Group, they'd be in the Champions League. The likelihood is they probably wouldn't be in as good a position as they are at the minute. <laughs> they wouldn't have as access to as many good players but at the same time City will that group will definitely limit the sort of level that they can get to so we never have to get to the point of well hang on Girona in Europe you're in Europe there's that competitive issue and it's the same with Salzburg we saw it when they got to the Europa League semi-finals the players were sold on quickly and, and and that's one of the other things is people had a problem with was that when say someone like Saboslai went from Salzburg to Leipzig the fee that he would have commanded if he was say at uh, rapid Vienna would, was going to be astronomically larger but then you could say well the positive for Salzburg is that they're open to this market of then getting new players in and then they got Jesse Marsh from New York Red Bulls and it's it's a sort of continuous cycle but I think the big one everyone has a problem with is is the tearing down of a club's identity um, no matter how old and how young because um, they purchased the Metro All-Stars in uh, who were only formed in 1994 and you, you're not talking a lot of history there. And a lot of people were very, very upset that their club, their new brand new club was going to be taken over. And really, probably, probably for the better. But it, it is one of those issues that people say that they don't want to lose something that they feel is theirs. And that's unfortunately what multi-club ownership might do. But um, I mean, as you, you already mentioned, my, my club boss, uh, Dick Steak and Sligo Rovers. I don't expect us to turn that into the City Football Group. But... <laughs> Uh, other clubs, there's no doubt about it now, there's going to be a lot of other clubs that are looking to do this, especially someone like uh, the Leeds owner, I can't remember his name, but he has different ownership stakes and different sporting groups. You can see the way that this is going and, and there's people looking at Red Bull and City Football Group and they're saying, well, we want to replicate this. And uh, clubs like Barcelona, who might need more money, this could open you up to, to brand deals and new advertisements and new fan bases. So is this something that can be replicated by not just, say, the big boy clubs, but say clubs that Leeds or Aston Villas or Marseille in France. Yes, again, yeah, you know, again, you know, Brighton have done it, so that yeah, that that, that that's the proof there. Um, and uh, I, I would expect to see it replicated. Remember, we do have Barcelona B and Real Madrid B playing in in Spanish football. 
We've got uh, Rangers and Celtic have B teams now in in the Lowlands leagues in Scotland. Um, this is this is an extension of it in a different country. Um, so, uh, looking at all of the bad things which are potentially in present football, this for me is not high on the agenda. Uh, there's there's certainly a case for saying it's not ideal. There's certainly a case for saying you can manipulate the numbers, uh, as, 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 you, as you evidence with with the transfer, and we've also got the transfer of Aaron Moy from uh, from uh, Melbourne to to Manchester City and then to Huddersfield, where all of the profits were kept in the accounts of Manchester City. Um, so, yeah, can it be done? And I'm not saying that that deal was was wrong, um, but uh, can it be done? Yes. Uh, but then it's up to the authorities to apply the rules appropriately. Yeah, and I've, you know, I've, I've sort of almost got your, your opinion on this, but it's one of the things I want to know is I've spoken to a couple of people now. What is their personal opinion on multi-club ownership? And do they think it's something that is only really benefiting the game in the long run? Is it something, Karen, that you think has benefited the game and you don't really have that much opposition to? Um. Yeah, I, I think I think there are uh, potential benefits. You know, the the club, the the, the satellite clubs, the one of a better word, um, they have access con conceptually to better players. They have uh, they, they have access to uh, more advanced data analytics, training training systems, and so on. Um, and, and provided the parent organisation doesn't make the huge mistake in trying to rebrand the club as something which it isn't then uh I, I anticipate this this will go forwards compared to super league compared to uh you know the the, the monstrosity which is the new champions league um i, I would say that this is is, is pretty low low-hanging fruit yeah, I mean, at the minute, you know, uh, there's already a war going on sort of between UEFA and FIFA about the expansion of the World Cup to every two years. And, and this kind of feels like something everyone knows it is an issue, but we'll put it in the back burner. There's other things to deal with right now. But um, it's the final question I've got to ask you, Kieran, is obviously with coronavirus, a lot of clubs have lost quite a lot of money, no matter if you're the top or the bottom. Um, and it's exposed a lot of clubs that, um, that have been run pretty poorly in the last couple of years. Like, for example, my club, Everton, have paid it was sort of 180 million in transfer fees without receiving anything back and coronavirus when it wrecked the revenue streams then all of a sudden like somewhere like somewhere like that just passed your hands are tied mm -hmm. spending wise so I, I sort of feel like now saying although coronavirus has caused destruction throughout football in, in money is it potentially now given a chance is this given multi-club ownership a real chance now that some of these bigger teams that have got quite wealthy owners can say, well, this is the chance to do it because clubs in Europe can't say, they simply can't say no to the idea of money, data, but basically sell your rights to us, but we will help you financially. Yes, um, there's there's a saying in the, uh, in the world of insolvency, which is my historic background, is that the crisis Crises create opportunities, and we're in a crisis. So we have what's referred to as distressed assets in, in the form of these clubs who are under huge financial pressures. And somebody comes along and waves a solution. Now that that could be from a multi-club purpose. That could be an, that could be any other party as well. Remember, um, and you'd have to give it serious consideration because 
if, if you do talk to a fan, um, the most important thing is that you have a, have a club to support in 12 months' time. Now, it, it might not quite be the club that is in your heart. That's, that's the, the romantic element of the relationship that you have with it. But at the same time, it's still a club in existence. Um, if it's playing in the same kit, you know, who cares about the sponsor? If it's in the right colour at the right stadium with, with, with some players with whom you've got some form of relationship historically, then I, I suspect that the, the view of fans will be it's the lesser of two evils. Yeah, and for example, like a, a team like mine, Everton, for, for many, many years, the fan base were crying out for this new owner, a wealthy owner, someone to come in and, and take over the club and give us the money to get to the Champions League. And there is no doubt about it, the club has changed in five years. It has lost a bit of what it was. It's still, yes, it still technically feels like, for example, the club that says it's the people's club, but some of the people now involved with the club never would have been near the club originally if, if, if Ken Wright was still the chairman. And so that's what I say to people who say, well, multi-club ownership is bad for these smaller clubs. To me, it's no different. If someone was to come in and take over the club, as long as the people coming in, there are safeguards there that they can't run this club like a farm and treat it like it's the forgotten child. As long as they take care of the club and take care of the fans, then I don't see really uh, too much of an issue with it. But that wraps us up, guys, for episode four of what has been a series on looking into multi-club ownership. Uh, it's been a great journey with uh, hopefully everyone has joined us for all four of the episodes. Just want to take time again. Thank you, Kieran, uh, for being part of the wrap up episode. Uh, Thanks for the invite. Yeah. And, and good luck with the project. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I say again, guys, uh, check out Kieran's book. The Price of Football is a fantastic insight uh, into the world of finance and football. But once again, thank you for staying with us and goodbye. <laughs>